ready? Yeshua the Messiah, the light of the world. Amen. Amen. And now the Kiddush, blessing over the cup. Baruch Adonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, Borei pri hagahafen, Amen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. Amen. Amen. And now the blessing over the bread. Hamotzi lechem min haaretz, we give thanks to God for bread. Our voices rise in song together, as our joyful prayer is said. Baruch atarunai, Eloheinu melech olam, hamotzi lechem min haaretz, amen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from out of the earth. Amen. Amen. All of that. <laughs> now, husbands, if you will bless your wives. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for the wonderful wife that you've given me. And Father, we thank you and I pour out a blessing upon all the wives on this Sabbath day. I pray that you bless her, strengthen her, and encourage her as she rises in the night to see about the ways of the household. And I pray that you strengthen her as she teaches and educates our children. Father, I pray that you pour out your very best blessing upon her and that you would encourage her in everything that she does. Let her know how worthy of praise and honor that she is. And Father, I confess with all of my heart that I love her and I thank you, Lord, for her. We also bless all of the widows and orphans, those without a father or a husband at this time as well. We thank you in Yeshua's name. Amen. Amen. All right, now let's bless our sons. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And may you be as Ephraim and Manasseh. Amen. 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 Let's bless our daughters. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And may you be as Ruth and as Esther. Amen. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Shalom. Please join us for the Baruchu, the call to worship. Baruchu et Aronai Hamvorach. Baruch Aronai Hamvorach Leolam Vaed. Bless the Lord who is to be praised. Blessed be the Lord who is praised for all eternity. Amen. And now the Michamocha. Michamocha. Ma'elim Adonai Michamocha Nedar Bakodesh Norate Hilot 
Blessing of Messiah. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam asher natan lanu et derech haYeshua b'Mashiach Yeshua. Altogether, blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has given us the way of salvation in Messiah Yeshua. Amen. And now the Vishamru. Vishamru v'nei Yisrael et Hashabbat la'asot et Hashabbat la'doratam berit olam b'nei Ovayan b'nei Yisrael oti le'olam. Kishishet yamin asa aronai et hashmayim va et haralets uvayom hashvi'i shvat vayinefash. Altogether, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath and observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as an everlasting covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he ceased from work and was refreshed. Amen. And now the Shema. If you would all turn and face east toward Jerusalem for the watchword of our faith, the Shema. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, Baruch Shem Kevod Malchuto, Le'olam va'ed Yeshua HaMashiach Hu Adonai Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Blessed be His name, whose glorious kingdom is forever and ever. Yeshua the Messiah, He is Lord. Amen. And now the Ve'ahavta. Ve'ahavta et Adonai Elochecha. Bechol levavcha, uvchol nafshecha, uvchol meyodecha. Vahayu hadevarim ha'alei asher anochi mitzavcha hayom al levavcha. Vashinantam levanecha, vidibartabam, vashivtacha, babethcha, uvlechtecha, viderech, uvshuchbecha, uvkumicha. Ukshartam leot al yedecha, vahayu letotafot benanecha. Uktaftam al mezuzot betecha uvisharecha. Altogether, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words which I command you this day shall be upon your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall speak of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them for a sign upon your hand, and they shall be for frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them upon the doorposts of your house and upon your gates. Amen.
He's working all things out in the waiting. The same God who never lay is working all things out. He's working all things out. Yes, I will lift you high in the lowest valley. Yes, I will bless your name. Yes, I will sing for joy when my heart is heavy all my days. Yes, I will. Baruch 
שנתן תורה, תורה לעמו ישראל Shabbat Shalom, everyone, and welcome to our Arab Shabbat service this uh, Sabbath. Uh, this Sabbath, we are in the book of Deuteronomy. We're completing this cycle of the year, and we're at the portion called Kitabo, which is uh, Deuteronomy chapter 26, where it says, Then it shall be when you enter, when you enter the land. Kitabo is when you go in or when you enter. And Again, if you remember the context of the book of Deuteronomy, Moses wrote this book kind of at the conclusion of the 40 years of being in the wilderness. He's on, they're on the brink of getting ready to cross over the Jordan River. And he's doing a thing called the repetition of the law. These are the words that were spoken um, in the time of what happened in the wilderness and with Israel coming out of Egypt. And he's trying to prepare Israel to go into the land. This particular portion is very direct to that. When you enter into the land, he's giving some instruction of what, what you need to do when you go into the land. And one of the things he says right off the bat um, here is he talks about when you go in, you need to take some of the product of the land some of the fruit of the land, some of the produce of the land, in other words, what the land has produced for you, and you need to take it, select it, put it in a basket, and take it into the Lord uh, there at the tabernacle and make a gift to the Lord saying, thank you uh, for this land and for what it produces for it. It's, it the, Moses is basically saying, don't forget to thank the Lord once you get in the land. Go and thank him. Have you ever heard anybody prayer, pray this particular prayer? They ask God to do something that they really are seriously needing, and then they say something like that, and we will not forget to thank you, or we will remember to thank you, Lord, when you do it. That's kind of what this is all about. It's about connecting thanksgiving with receiving the good things of the Lord. Don't just take and receive, process it and be thankful uh, for it. A person who's not thankful for something they receive is probably a person that's demonstrating their character they shouldn't have received it to begin with. But if they are thankful for it, then it was appropriate and it was nice and respectful. And so Moses is instructing them about how to make this gift when they come to the Lord, to the land, when they enter in, to go before the Lord and say thank you. And it's also to make a profession. Let's get it straight, who I am, where we're at, what we're doing. And I want to read to you um, what this says here, what Moses gave to it. Um, and it's in Deuteronomy chapter 26. And let me begin at verse 2. You shall take some of the first of all the produce in the ground, which you shall bring in from the land, and the Lord your God gives you, and you shall put it in a basket, and go to the place where the Lord your God has chosen to establish his name, 
you should go to the priest who is in the office at that time and say to him, I declare this day to the Lord my God that I have entered the land which the Lord swore to our fathers to give to us. Then the priest shall take the basket from your hand, set it down before the altar in the Lord your God, and you shall answer and say before the Lord your God, My father was a wandering Aramean, and he went down to Egypt and sojourned there, few in number. But there he became a great, mighty, and populous nation, and the Egyptians treated us harshly and afflicted us and imposed hard labor on us. Then we cried to the Lord and the God of our fathers. The Lord heard our voice saw our affliction and our toil and our oppression. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and with great terror and with signs and wonders. And he brought us to this place and has given us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And now behold, I have brought the first of the produce of the ground, which the, the ground which thou hast given me, and you shall sit down before the Lord your God and worship before the Lord your God. And you and the Levite and the alien who's among you shall rejoice in all the good which the Lord your God has given you and your household. What a beautiful thing to come to the land and to fulfill what Moses said. Remember, Moses is saying to the people, remember when you get into the land and you're starting to enjoy things, gather some of that produce up that you're enjoying now. Put it in a basket. Take it to the priest. Put it before the altar. Sit down, everybody, and acknowledge who are we, where have we come from, this is where we're at now. Thank you, you know, for it. You know what I think uh, a lot of messianics that come into the messianic uh, way of thinking are actually doing, whether they realize it or not? They're, um, they're in a, an ID movement, identification. Their identification is changing. They've gone back to the Torah, they've gone back to the Scriptures, and they've discovered, I'm part of this book. This is a story about me. Even even those who don't claim to be of a physical descendancy of Israel, Jewish or whatever, it, the book says, but the alien, even the one who's there too, he gets to be included. The Gentile, I don't care what nation you came from, you get to be included that Israel is made up of the native-born and the alien and the sojourner. They're, they're all together. What Paul talked about in, in Romans, the commonwealth of Israel. All, all of us are part of Israel. We're part of the kingdom. The promised land has been promised to all of us. All these blessings have been promised to all of us. And every once in a while you get these new uh, messianics that come out of the church. They were told they weren't part of Israel. And they suddenly come in and they go, wait a minute, the Scripture says I am part of Israel. The God of Israel is my God. I get to believe in him too. I get to come and enjoy the God of Israel and all these promises and all these blessings the same way. And new messianics come in, and the first thing that they have to come to terms with is, you know, I think Abraham might be my father. And if he's my father, then the inheritance of Abraham, all those blessings that Abraham passed down to his descendants, they belong on me. Uh, that, that, that's my heritage. That's what I'm supposed to be a part of. And that, that's what this proclamation is. Go back and remember 
Abraham. Now, let me ask you kind of an interesting question. This is when you enter the land. Why would, when we enter the land, why would we want to go back and remember Abraham? It's because it was God's promise of the land to Abraham. Abraham is the one who's connected to the promise of the land. And so by going back and remembering you're part of Abraham, then that means the land has been promised to you. So when you enter the land, get the full connection. This land belongs to me. I belong to the land. Every believer belongs to it. Now, uh, I know there's some people out there probably thinking, well, wait a minute, Israel's a very small nation about the size of New Jersey. How can all of us believers be a part of that? Well, obviously, I'm talking about the promise that God gave to Abraham, which was the greater Israel. The first part of land that was given to him was what we call the down payment. The greater Israel is the whole world. God is going to be God. When the Messiah returns, he's going to be king over the whole earth. It's all going to be called Israel. And all the people that will dwell there and live there will be of the commonwealth of Israel, and they will be descendants of Abraham, and they will be the fulfillment of what God promised to Abraham about the land, and we're in the kingdom. So it's not just the physical dirt and rocks that are over there. It's talking about the whole earth, the good earth that God made for man to live into and be a part of it. The, um, the rest of this portion, this Torah portion about entering the land, it, I want you to notice that he emphasizes this particular expression by Moses. He talks about this day. In fact, if you look at verse 5, he says, I declare this day to the Lord my God. If you go down a little bit further, verse 16, this day the Lord your God commands you to do these statutes and ordinances. You'll find this little expression, it jumps over to chapter 27 of verse 9. Then Moses and the Levitical priests spoke to all Israel, be silent and listen, O Israel. This day you have become a people for the Lord your God. This day. That's what we call the now and present. Let me just share something with you about if you're going to accomplish anything in your life. This, this is a truth about success. It's what you do today that determines your success. It's not what you did in the past. It's what you did today is determines what your success and your life is. It's not what you're hoping to do in the future. That's, that's not your life. That's not what you've accomplished. It's not what you did last. It, it's what you do today. The, um, I, I used to be, for a while, I used to be a, a football fan. Uh, I used to watch the NFL a lot. And I heard an expression um, that came from the National Football League pro football players. And they said this, uh, you're only as good as the last football game you played. Um, if, you, if the last game you played was the Super Bowl, well, then you're the champion. If you, the next football game you lose, well, you're, you're a team that's struggling and you're trying to win. 
Okay. You're only as good as the last one that you played. And that is somewhat true of us in the faith. Your walk is only as good as how you're walking today. If you're walking today, then your, your, your uh, spiritual life is good. And there is a concept that is explained, uh, that is hinted at here in the Torah portion, and it seems almost impossible that, I don't know if I can find the exact reference for you, but I'll tell you what it is, and, and it's in here where it talks about, you are to be blameless before me. Well, let's be honest. Um, I have sinned a lot in the past. And I have no guarantees that I won't sin in the future. In fact, there's a good possibility today that I will probably will sin and make a mistake. Um, so that's a common thing for me. So how can I ever achieve the status before God of being blameless? How can I ever get there? God calls me to do it. Well, let me tell you that that's only something that can be done this day. You can't be blameless about the past. You can't be blameless about the future, but you can be blameless about today. And one of the things that we teach about the commandments, if you keep the commandments, you're blameless. Would you agree with me on that? that I mean, that's logic. If you keep the commandments, then you would be blameless because you would be receiving blame for failing to keep the commandments. And one of the ways we illustrate this principle about keeping the commandments and being blameless before God is with the talit. It, we are commanded to wear these sitsits. So when I put my talit on and I cover myself with it and I have my sitsits, at that moment I'm obeying the commandment. And by doing that, at that moment, I'm blameless. I can't keep multiple commandments at the same time. I can keep each one one at a time. And that's how you walk before the Lord. You take one step at a time. You don't take multiple steps and every, all the steps work. You know, your feet don't go forward all the time. It's one step at a time. It's one commandment after another. You learn to walk before the Lord. Now, if you're walking in the commandments, guess what? You're walking in the light and you're blameless. That's how you achieve being blameless. It's what are you doing today? Not what you did in the past. Not what you're intending to do in the future. But what are you doing today in terms of where are your feet taking you? Are you walking out the commandments of the Lord? Uh, that is the thrust of when you come in to the Lord. Now, uh, I, got, I have to mention uh, Deuteronomy 27 and 28. Um, it is a, it's an instruction that when they enter the land, that six tribes uh, were to go up on this one mountain, uh, which was called Mount Ebal. The other six tribes were to go up on a mountain that's near it called Mount Gerizim. And these two mountains are up in the area called Shechem. Shechem actually means shoulders. These are the two mountains that form the structure. This is the first place where um, 
Jacob and his family first dwelt. And um, he was told when he came that he was to get blessings, that God was going to bless him and his family. And so he dwelt in that area. That's where he first uh, dwelt. Um, And there's a pronouncement. Moses specifically gives it. These six tribes that stand on Mount Ebal, you're to pronounce the following curses. And you six tribes that are on the Mount Gerizim, you're to speak these uh, blessings. And it's like the people were to speak over the top of themselves what the curses and what the blessings would be. Um, The Torah is a curse. This is exactly what Paul says in the book of Galatians. Now, when the average Christian hears that, they go, oh, it's obviously it's bad. We shouldn't be having anything to do with it. Let's move away from it. And so they don't understand what he's talking about. He's talking about this Torah portion. He's talking about the Torah is the blessings and it's the curses. It's delineated. It's now been expounded. And by the way, God commanded and Moses instructed us, our fathers stood up and spoke these things over the top of us. Okay? Let me take you to Deuteronomy 27 where it talks about the curses. If you go down through this list, it starts with verse 15 through the end of the chapter. There's a whole list of things where Israel pronounced upon themselves that they would be cursed if they did them. And most of them have to do with doing things in secret. It's one thing to transgress the commandment. It's a whole nother thing to do something in secret. When you do something in secret, you merit a curse. You don't get justice from the other things, but you do get a curse. And a lot of these curses have to do with immoral behavior because a lot of immoral behavior, sexual perversion and stuff, is usually done in secret. So he says, if you go and do all that stuff in secret, you've cursed yourself. But it gets down to the final one, the final curse. And now it's dealing with something that's secretively within your heart if you fail to do something in your heart. Verse 26 says, Cursed is he who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. That was the verse that Paul quoted in the book of Galatians. Now, if it, let's see, I will be cursed if I don't confirm the words of this law by doing them. Now, does that sound like Paul is, he quotes that, does that sound like Paul's trying to tell you you should have nothing to do with the law? No. <laughs> in fact, that's saying you better do what the law says. And if you don't, you'll be cursed. That's actually what it says. Now, one of the interesting parts about this, and let me go ahead and just mention it. You know, maybe you reacted to that statement that I just made. Maybe it kind of put you back a little bit. Uh, God's judgment is based on grace and mercy. Uh he knows that if you're ignorant and you made a mistake you didn't intend to, and so you get mercy. But if you're willful and defiant, 
you get justice. Um, but here, the confirmation is going in. You have to confirm the words of the law by doing them. I know a lot of Christians who have no problem with the commandments of the Lord. They have no problem with any of these commandments that Moses wrote, except they don't do them. They know that Sabbath is the commandment. They know it's the fourth commandment of the Ten Commandments, but they don't do it. They got excuses. They got explanations. So, uh, Like the fellow who said to me not too long ago, Oh, I know God has specifically said and forbidden us from eating uh, pig and shellfish and, and things like that, but I don't keep those dietary restrictions. No, I'm taking my chances on my own and so forth. Do you understand? He acknowledges that this is the commandment, but he's not confirming the commandment by doing it. You know what came out of his mouth when he said that to me? He cursed himself. He cursed himself. Um, that's, I don't know about you, but I, I think that's pretty serious. By the way, he's a good man. He's a godly man. He loves the Lord, but he cursed himself. And, and in this spiritual world, that's serious. We believe in spiritual laws. We believe in blessings and curses. We we, we believe that God is holy and righteous and just, and, and if he said that, that's the way it is. Why would we ignore that? Why, why would we think, oh, God's grace will cover me, and then he'll ignore all that other stuff he said before? You, you really think he's going to forget? You really think he's not going to hold us to it? I don't think so. But we have a lot of people who think in, in those terms. And... And equally in, in uh, Deuteronomy 28, we hear all those wonderful blessings. No, the blessings is what we want to pursue. Those are the things that we want. By the way, if you look at the blessings, it talks about food, good, clean food, about a safe home. It talks about children, healthy, you, you stay healthy. Those are the real blessings that God can give to you. Life. He'll give you life to live. Those are the blessings. All right, so let's move to the Haftors uh, that goes with this portion. And if you've been following the last few weeks, we are going through what are called the Haftors of Constellation. That's seven Haftors that are tracking. This is the week of the sixth one, the sixth of the seven one. And the one that goes with Kitavo is Isaiah chapter 60, beginning of verse 1. Uh, in in times past, we have talked about um, fear of the great tribulation and fear of things coming, and we're told to be comforted by God and fear not and be strong and courageous and so forth. And one of the events that specifically is prophesied to be in the great tribulation toward the end, specifically in, in fact, in the last five months, of the three-and-a-half-year Great Tribulation, is the world is supposed to be plunged into darkness. This is the fifth trumpet, and there's a plague that goes that corresponds with it as well, in which the world is put into darkness. It's like the darkness that came upon Egypt before the death of the firstborn. And it clearly shows that the world is dying. In fact, 
Scientists today will tell you that if the world was ever plunged into darkness for four months, the entire planet will go extinct. Everything and everybody will die. Well, this prophesied darkness is five months. And it is true. At the end of the Great Tribulation, everybody's going to understand nobody's going to make it. There's no way to extend, outlast it, to you know, survive. If God doesn't come back and deliver us, nobody is going to make it. In fact, specifically, it says that when God does come back, he, he cuts the days short so that all flesh doesn't die because they're on the brink of dying, you know, for it. Now, so with that said, there is this darkness. Here is the Haftorah of consolation that is dealing with the, the most, um, in fact, um, it's described as the final days of indignation in the Great Tribulation. The worst part of the Tribulation is this last five months and when the darkness comes. So here is the Haftor of Consolation, and it speaks directly to this. Isaiah 60, verse 1, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you, for behold, darkness will cover the earth, deep darkness the peoples, but the Lord will rise upon you, and his glory will appear upon you, and nations will come to your light, and kings to your brightness of your rising. Verse 4, lift up your eyes around about you and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons will come from afar. Your daughters will be carried in the arms. Then you will see and be radiant, and your heart will thrill and rejoice because the abundance of the sea will be turned to you. The wealth of the nations will come to you. The multitude of camels will cover you. The young camels of Midian and Ephath, all those from Sheba will come. They will bring gold and frankincense. They will bear good news of the praises of the Lord. All the flocks of Keter will be gathered together to you. The rams of Nebelot will minister to you. They will come up to you and, and, and with acceptance on my altar. And I shall glorify my glorious house. Who are these who fly like clouds and like doves to their lattices? Surely the coastlands will wait for me, and the ships of Tarshish will come first to bring their sons from afar, their silver and the gold, and them for the name of the Lord your God, for the Holy One of Israel, because he has glorified you. It's talking about Israel. It's talking about the believers in the Great Tribulation. You do realize that when we come to the darkness, the believers, the Tribulation saints, won't be in darkness. They will have light. And it will be blatantly obvious to any other mortals that you, who believe in the Lord, you are the ones who are going to inherit the earth. Everybody else is going to be dying, but you're going to inherit the earth. So literally all the nations of the world, everything of value of the earth is going to be coming to you. The whole earth, all, all of the value of the earth, all flocks, all herds, all, they're all going to be coming to you. They're going to be given to you because the other people aren't going to be around. Because you have light and the rest of the world is in darkness. Now, um, I know that sounds fantastic, but it's practical. 
And by the way, this is what happened back in Egypt. You remember when the darkness hit back in Egypt, three days darkness that could be felt? The Israelites, they had light. They had light in their homes. They could move around. It was the Egyptians that were stuck. They couldn't, couldn't, they were blind men. But the Israelites had light in their dwelling places. And the same thing will happen to us, the tribulation saints, in the great trib at the final days of indignation, the final uh, five months. And by the way, we will quote this verse. On that day, we will quote this verse. And, and as we approach that day and get close to it, I will be reading this verse and I will tell them what's going to happen. When exactly is this darkness coming? Because this is a very serious judgment. Well, there's a very interesting prophecy given in Daniel that tells us exactly when this comes in the great trip. A lot of people don't know about it. It's called the vision of the evenings and mornings. From the moment that the altar shuts down, there will be 2,300 evenings and mornings. And then there's no evening and no morning, meaning there's no sunlight. There's no sunrise and sunset anymore. Not until the Lord comes back. And if you, we know there's one sunrise and one sunset every day. So if you start from the day the altar gets shut down and you count 1,150 days, that's half of 2,300, 2,300 evenings and mornings becomes 1,150 days. If you count over 1,150 days, that tells you when the darkness is coming. Here we are, we start the Great Tribulation, and not only do we know it's the Great Tribulation, but we also start knowing when this final judgment of darkness comes. We know it. God has given the information to us to be encouraged, to be excited. And oh, by the way, when that happens, he says to us, arise, shine, for your light has come. Something incredibly good for us is going to be taking place. You know, we are on the brink of coming into the kingdom. This message of the Hostors of Consolation, the sixth message is, arise, shine, for your light has come. What a word of consolation. What a word of comfort. Uh, this has become. Now, next week, next Sabbath, we will be going through the portion Nitzavim, and we'll look at the very final Haftor of Consolation in the set of seven of the Haftors of Consolation. Until then, Shabbat Shalom. If you would please turn in your Bibles to the book of Luke, to chapter 21, where our Brett Hadashah teaching will begin for this week. As you open the scripture, let us turn this time over to the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, once again that we can open your word and that you can speak to us uh, in our lives, where whatever situation we might be in, wherever we might be. Father, I pray that uh, every time that we open your word, that you would, uh, your will for our lives would become alive and powerful and uh, that you would teach us your ways, Father. So we thank you once again for this opportunity to study your word and your instruction. I pray everyone is blessed on this Sabbath day as we dig into the Torah and all of the commandments and instructions that you give to us. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for choosing us from among all peoples, giving us your covenant, and uh, and ministering to us each and every Sabbath. We thank you in Yeshua's name. Amen. 
Luke chapter 21, uh, the very first couple of verses, tells us the little story of the widow's might in which uh, Yeshua was sitting with his disciples and they saw a widow come and make a donation to the temple treasury. And what it is, this is what they saw. Uh, Luke chapter 21, verse 1 says this, And he looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury. And he saw also a certain poor widow putting two in two mites, or two copper coins, as some translations say. So he said, Truly I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all, for all these out of their abundance have they put in offerings for God. But she out of her poverty put in all the livelihood that she had. This is one of the traditional readings for our Torah portion this week of Kitavo, uh, which comes to us from Deuteronomy chapter 26. And it's very interesting why this is one of the uh, traditional readings for this portion. Well, if we go back to Deuteronomy chapter 26, we have the instruction about the children of Israel when they enter into the land to bring a gift to the Lord, to bring a gift before the Levites, and that this was a, a procedure very specifically that the Lord wanted the children of Israel to bring their first fruits offerings to the temple when the Lord would show the place that he would put his name and that the children of Israel, after dwelling securely in the land, would bring this gift. This is a very interesting gift. This is one of those, uh, what is considered to be a mincha offering, or it's not a, it's not a uh, sacrifice of an animal, but it's a gift of the first fruits of their land or of the vineyard or of the orchard or whatever land they would take possession of in the promised land. They were to bring this offering. Now, now, why is this offering so important? Well, one, first of all, we should always give to the Lord, especially when he commands it. He says, I command you to give me a gift. Let's bring a gift before the Lord. Ultimately, the Lord wants us to, the, the relationship between us and him, the covenant between us and him, to be a two-way street. You know, the Lord has given all kinds of gifts to us. And in the case of the children of Israel, he's giving them the land, the land of Canaan, the promised land, as an inheritance to them. It's a gift and it's an exchange between God and his people. And it's all a part of the joining and the forming of a covenant between two parties. And that's one of the things that you, if you have a close enough relationship with somebody that you've given gifts to each other, well, then that's a certain level of a relationship that you might have a, a maybe a, an acquaintance that you don't give gifts either on their birthday or any other holiday, and, but you're not close enough to exchange gifts. Well, certain people you are. In the case of a marriage ceremony, that's what the ring, the engagement ring represents. The, the, the man and the wife, they exchange these rings as a gift that one gives a, a gift to the other and they exchange these things as a sign of their covenant. It's simply just one sign. Imagine if you went to a wedding and only one of them gave the other a ring and the other one didn't return a ring back to them. Well, this gets kind of a one-sided affair, don't you think? <laughs> They're not, that, that there's not this mutual exchange. You're like, what kind of marriage is this? That one is that one is less than the other, or there's a difference or a distinguishing a, a, a difference between the two, that one gets a gift and the other does not. And see, and that's why the relationship between us and God has to be a two-way street. So God giving the gift of the land to the children of Israel, they have to return a gift back to them. Well, it's very fitting that that gift back to them was out of the abundance and out of the blessing of God giving the land to the children of Israel. So bring me the first fruits. 
Bring me the result of the vineyard that I gave you. Bring me the result of the orchard or the field that give and bring one basket. That's all God is asking for back here in Deuteronomy chapter 26, that each one is to bring one basket of an offering before the Lord. This is not much. This is not going to hurt the 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 abundance and the thing. But but ultimately, somebody might look at that and just say, "Well, I have this field, and it's like I want to get the most bang for my buck, and I want to sell every bit of it that that I possibly can." But the Lord says, "No, bring me something. Bring me a part of it." And this is all about the nature of us in our relationship with the Lord and and to bring those gifts, especially in the ways that God has commanded a gift to be brought to Him. On any of the one of the three pilgrimage feasts, you're to bring a gift before the Lord. Let no man among you appear empty-handed. And so anytime that somebody would go to the temple to worship the Lord, they were to not come empty-handed as well. Now, back to the story of the widow's might, when it says that, look, she had two copper coins. These were It was the equivalent of pennies in this day, and in this day and age, pennies aren't worth very much anymore. In fact, when the U.S. Mint loses money on pennies every single year because the, the, the uh, copper that a penny is minted on is worth more than the penny, the resulting coinage that is produced. So the whole idea of, of the, you know, the, the value of what this woman actually gave, ultimately any onlooker would just be like, well, that's not much. That's not much. Or that's not worth anything. But the Messiah, of course, knowing the woman's circumstances, he kind of had that ability to know that because he knew the woman at the well. He knew how many husbands that she had. And he can look at this widow bringing, you know, donating to the, to the treasury. And he, he knows how much money she has. And he knows that this was her livelihood that she was bringing before the Lord. Whatever that those two copper coins could have bought for her, for her life to sustain, whether that was for bread or food or for whatever she else she might have needed in her life, she was coming and bringing a gift before the Lord. Ultimately, the Lord wants our best. He wants the best of what we have to give. That's why he asked for the first fruits. That first fruit, the first time that you ever get something fresh off of a plant that you've grown, that first tomato, that first apple off of a brand new tree, that is the best. There is absolutely the best because it's like this is what we've been waiting for this entire time. Everything that I've labored for has led to this moment, that first piece of fruit that comes off of that plant, and God says that part is mine. And ultimately, it's an honor that we have to give back to the creator of the universe. We wouldn't have any of these things if it weren't for him. We wouldn't have trees. We wouldn't have fields. We wouldn't have plants. We wouldn't have the earth. We wouldn't even be alive if it weren't for him. We have to give the Lord our best. You know, ultimately, the, the, the minimum idea when we talk about tithing is, you know, give 10% to the Lord, and, and then, you know, the rest belongs to you out of your increase and, and everything, so you can live your life and sustain, and we talk about the, that 10%. But there's some people that donate more than 10%. There's some people that donate even more or by faith put their money into something that, or, or, or any other uh, product they produce or whatever, and they, on faith, give more to somebody than is necessary. I had a wonderful story that happened to me not that long ago. I was at Mardell's, which is a Christian bookstore, and I was buying a couple of materials um, for the children's class of, uh, of our local congregation uh, here. And I went there to lay down some stuff, and I, I, I put it all there and was getting ready to do the purchase. And some guy came up behind me, and he said, I'd like to, like to buy that for you. 
And that never happened to me. I've heard stories about this happening in certain people, and you might see some viral videos about it. If somebody offering to buy somebody's purchase, whether it's at a grocery store or, or otherwise, and, and it never happened to me, and he, he did, this, did this for me. I don't know why it was me. Now, I certainly had the means, and I was ready to, to, to make the purchase, and I, I, I double-checked, and I, I, all the thing, and I thanked him, and the man's name was Jerry, and it's like, and I said, I'll pray for you, your family, and he said, the Lord loves you and, and, and bless you and all these things, and it was this beautiful exchange of, of him not even knowing me, but was, was paying it forward to something, to, to be a blessing to somebody else. And it was, it, it was emotionally a wonderful experience. I immediately, you know, got on the phone, started texting friends and just say, hey, check out what happened, just happened to me and things. And I told him, I'm going to pay it forward. So I haven't done that yet. But at some point, I want to look for that opportunity to give more. And to give to, to, to something or a cause or a feeling or just be led of the Spirit to give to somebody who is in need. That's ultimately what the Lord wants us to do is He wants it to stir in our hearts to do good for someone. And maybe it's not necessarily donation straight to a church or a congregation or a ministry, though there are those in, uh, that labor for the kingdom and are like modern-day priests who labor to minister to the brethren and that those people are taken care of by the tithes and offerings of, of the brethren. But also, there's nothing like giving to somebody, finding a need and being proactive with your gift to the Lord and just give it to an area that appears to be in need. And what a beautiful thing that that is. And ultimately, we should always be encouraged to be giving and not just giving just the 10%. No, though that, that purchase could have come out of Jerry's 10% of his, his increase. Maybe that's how he chooses to give his, his tithe. But also there are those that give out of their livelihood, give out more than that, and who on faith worship the Lord in that way. And what an amazing blessing it is, is uh, for them. And I pray that the Lord would continue to minister to them and take care of them, even if they give out of their own livelihood. And that's the trust and that's the faith that they have. Now, I'm not saying that all of us are, are going to ever have that faith and be able to do that and make that decision. But ultimately, when it comes to giving to the Lord, that's what true giving should be. So what a blessing that is and an encouragement to us that every time that we go and we think about what the Lord has done for us, the gifts he has given to us, meeting our needs, we should always be mindful to return that back to him. Just as he commanded the children of Israel to just bring a basket of the fruit of the land that he gave to the children of Israel. So what a blessing that is. The story in Deuteronomy in our Torah portion this week continues on and goes back into the details of what the children of Israel were to do when they go to into the land and go to the mountains of Gerasim and Mount Ebal. Now, we've already talked a little bit about this, that going to Mount Gerizim, they were to put uh, six tribes onto one mountain, and they were going to bless that one, and six tribes on the other one, and they were going to curse that. And in our Torah portion, specifically in Deuteronomy chapter 27, it goes through the very specific pronounced uh, curses that were to be said at this time and at this procedure. Now, when we talked about this before, a couple of weeks ago, it was this uh, ceremony was referenced a couple of weeks ago in a couple of chapters earlier in Deuteronomy that I talked about the story of Yeshua when he met the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. And the reason why we talked about that was the fact that the Samaritans is a sect of Judaism that worships at Mount Gerizim at the, in the town of Shechem and believing that to be the mountain of God where all sacrifices and worship was to be done to the Lord. 
and that this was obviously the biggest divide between the Samaritans and the rest of the mainstream Judaism and Jews and the children of Israel, that it was at Jerusalem, where the building of the temple by King David and his son King Solomon, and that that is the place where the worship of the Lord should be to go to Jerusalem three times a year. According to the Samaritans, you go to Mount Gerizim three times a year. And that this was a division between the two. And in the story of the woman at the well, of course, there was the Messiah whose poignant words were that it is not on this mountain nor in Jerusalem that we will worship, but the true worshipers worship in spirit and truth. And that what an encouragement that is to, it's not about us being on those mountains or at a mountain to worship the Lord, but that we worship the Lord in our hearts and from our hearts and on the temple and the altar that is in here, that is where the true worshipers of God worship the Father. And this is a blessing blessing and encouragement to us scattered throughout the nations and how we walk and worship the Lord. Well, the thing I want to do this week, specifically talking about this this story and all the curses that were to be pronounced here on Mount Ebal, I want to contrast that and instead take us to Matthew chapter 5 which is one of the most common portion uh, passages we can tend to go to in the Brit Hadashah. But we haven't yet really talked about the beginning of Matthew chapter 5, when the Messiah began the Sermon on the Mount. Once again, we have this parallel of standing on a mountain and things being pronounced. Rather than curses on Mount Ebal being pronounced, we now have a series of blessings that the Messiah begins the Sermon on the Mount with that has become known as the Beatitudes. The, these blessings that, that God gave that kicked off this entire teaching. And the thing that I love, I love about the Beatitudes, it's encouraging to read every single time. And, and whenever you do read these things, you want to be the people that is the fulfillment of these blessings. And what's interesting about it is that these are things that maybe you don't necessarily initially would want to be. But ultimately, because of the blessing that is returned back to you, because of you are either poor in spirit or you find yourself in mourning, you do want to be these things before the Lord because you want to be blessed because because of, of these blessings. In the same way, if you go back to the curses that were pronounced here at the end of Deuteronomy chapter 27, you read these things and you're like, nope, I don't want to be those either. I don't, well, back in Beatitudes, I don't really want to be poor in spirit. I don't really want to be in mourning. Well, you go back to these curses and you certainly don't want to be one who uh, holds your father and mother in contempt and becomes cursed or uh, moves your neighbor's boundary marker or causes the blind to wander off the road or any other series of things that are terrible, horrible sins, according to Torah, and that you are cursed because of doing them. All of those things back in the Torah, these curses that were pronounced, are things that destroy, things that destroy relationships, things that destroy covenants that you have between one another, things that destroy your covenant between you and God. Through all of these things about taking a bribe or or any of these terrible sins, the very last one is the one that is the one that gets all of us, that it says, cursed is the one who does not confirm all the words of this law by observing them. Nobody wants that curse. But of course, we might you sit here and say, is like, is anyone perfect in the law and in, in observing them and, and to always observe? Do you confirm every word of the law in all things? No? Well, then Torah says you're cursed. These are the things that we, we, we don't want. These are the curses that we, that we don't want to have. But we have to, these again are these teachable things of if you can do these physical things, maintain these physical boundaries, 
which is actually what all these curses are about. It's all about boundaries. Two of them are, 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 are specifically about your neighbor, about your neighbor's boundary, your neighbor's landmark, or to attack your neighbor secretly, that you're obviously crossing the boundary by which the relationship between you and your neighbor should be. And also some of these things have some sexual sins associated with this, that you're crossing boundaries that are not meant to be done between relationships, between fellow human beings, and the boundaries between you and your parents, and then making sure that you honor your father and mother. These are all boundaries that you are not to cross, physical things that you can say, nope, not going to do that, not going to do that, not going to do that, not going to do that. These are things that you can do to not be cursed. Now, when you come to the Sermon on the Mount and you have the Beatitudes, these are things that are less physical to do. These are spiritual actions that are given to us by the Messiah that give us blessing. And this is the, the beautiful contrast between the Torah and the Word of God, or the, word of, the words of Yeshua and the teachings of Yeshua, that there's this beautiful balance between truth and spirit, that here is the true obedience of what it is to obey the Torah, but then this is the spirit by which we do them. They're actually one and the same. But we sit here and we contrast, and, and, and you know, we can sit here and talk about the letter of the law or the spirit of the law. What's the purpose of the commandment? What are we really supposed to learn from the commandment? Rather than just looking at it as a whole bunch of do's and don'ts, let's make this big list of things we can't do and big list of things that we do. Let's add to those lists so that we make sure we got all of our bases covered and that's our religion and that's what we're going to do. Yeah, but are we really digging into it to understand the spirit of the law? What's the spirit of what God is trying to teach us in these actions that we do in our obedience of his commandments? That's how... The Messiah taught the Torah. Beginning here on the Sermon on the Mountain, he's always said, you've heard it said this, but I say to you, this is what you're supposed to learn. You've heard it said, don't murder. Yeah, if you've literally never physically taken your hands and murdered somebody, well, then yeah, you've kept the commandment. But have you ever hated somebody in your heart? The Messiah says that's the same as murder. That's the spirit behind all of it. That's, a, that's where we almost, we can't, it's not just about the physical boundaries of things, but it's the spiritual boundaries of where we let our mind and our emotions go to commit a sin in the spirit, even though you didn't physically do it. This is what the spiritual blessings are for those that are, that are being described here by the Messiah here in the Beatitudes. Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, the first of these began, where it says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Receiving the kingdom of heaven, it's like, what, what a beautiful, who wants to go to the kingdom of heaven? I do. We all want to go to the kingdom of heaven. Where's the kingdom of heaven? We don't really know. It's the spiritual place. It's a, is the kingdom of heaven come about here on earth? Or is it this place with golden streets and pearly gates? And, and, and what, what is the kingdom of heaven? Many people have speculated what it is. It's the spiritual thing, it's the spiritual idea of paradise, where we want to go. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Wait a minute, I thought we were supposed to be lifted up in spirit. It's like, no. Sometimes those that are the, the, the humble, the meek, those that are less than, those are the ones that will actually be given the kingdom. Remember all the other teachings that the Messiah gives, he's talking about those that humble themselves will be exalted. Those that exalt themselves will be humble. So if you stand up and say, I'm, I'm rich in spirit, well, what's going to happen to them? That's eh, not to say that they won't be in the kingdom, but are they really going to be the inheritors of the kingdom? These are things, well, once again, you look at that and you're like, poor in spirit. Why do I want to be poor in spirit? Well, the thing is, is these are words that lift up. These are words that encourage. These are, when somebody is in pain, when somebody is in suffering, when so, 
These are the words that lift them up and say, blessed are you who are poor in spirit. This is why when it comes to the teaching of the gospel or being a good Christian, this is why you go to the people who need to hear something, that bit of encouragement, that word that comes from the Lord, and you're lifting somebody up out of the the ash heap and and bringing them and giving them equity in the kingdom of God, and you include them in all of the blessings. This is evangelism. This is what God was intending for all of mankind. If there is a religion, which there's a lot of them, that do no evangelism, that do not reach out to help those who are in need and do not see the blessings they have from the Word or whatever holy writ or holy scripture they follow, and they have these blessings, for them to think that those are isolated and only for them and not supposed to go to somebody else, then that's a very selfish religion. That's a very, a very isolated religion that it's not that, that they don't want the, they have the blessing. God's given them blessing. And then somehow you think that God shouldn't then bless somebody else, maybe with the same blessings. When you are blessed, you go and you share it with somebody else because out of the abundance of what you have been given, share with those that are in need. This is the instruction through all of Israel to not forsake the stranger among you. For you were strangers in the land of Canaan, Abraham was. You were strangers in the land of Egypt, as the children of Israel were. And then they're saved, and they're like, but don't forsake the stranger that's among you. I'm trying to teach you this. Share out of the blessings that you have and give to those that are in need. That's why the words and the teaching of Yeshua and being a good Christian is about going and helping those that are in need. If you're not doing that, if that's not an active part of your faith or your religious walk, then you are that isolated religion. That isolated, where it's like you have the blessings and you're good that you met and you don't really care about it going to anybody else. Now, look, not everybody is called to be an evangelist. There's different offices of ministry and there's teachers and pastors and, and it's, a, it's one of the offices of ministry, but ultimately the entire body of Messiah operates with all of them where we need the teachers, pastors, evangelists, prophets, and apostles all working together to edify the body. We can't just have one doing one job and that's it. We all have to be working and serving. That's ultimately the entire nature of God and what, the, what we are taught through the scripture and through the Bible is to lift up those and to do good. Through Abraham and his seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. It's not isolated to just one particular group or just Abraham's seed that is blessed. All the families of the earth are to be blessed by the words. That's why we go to those that are less than us or less fortunate than us, and we bring them along with us. Those are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. When you lost something, it's like, again, these are the words, be blessed, And they are blessed because here's the thing is when you have the opportunity to mourn, that means you still have life. You might be, you you might be overcome by the emotion that, that some loved one has passed away, but you still have the life that God has given to you. And that is a blessing and be comforted. And and, and, in all these things, again, these, these are just these beautiful words that are, that are encouraging. So if you don't have a plaque of the Beatitudes, you know, this is why this is kind of, This sometimes is considered to be a little bit Christianity 101, but what it truly is, is these are the words, this is the spirit by which the Torah actually should be taught. Because remember, Yeshua said all of these things before he started teaching about Torah, before he started talking about commandments and eye for eye, 
And talking about loving your neighbor, and that's all teaching out of Torah. This is how we prefaced it. This is the thing that we need to do first and foremost before we get to the time of teaching about the commandments of God is lifting up those who are the humble among us and encouraging them. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. That's the one where it's like we need to be encouraged to do righteousness, to do good, and to hunger for it. As just like if you're really hungry and you go and you find something to eat, that we should be hungry to do what is right in all circumstances and all situations. Sometimes, you know, sometimes you feel like you're satisfied. Sometimes you're, you're, you're hungry, you eat, you're done, and then you just you, you sit and you relax and you're good. But ultimately, righteousness is not something that we should ever be satisfied in which that we've done enough of it. Righteousness is something that we should live by. Such was the testimony of Abraham when it said, when, when God said of his friend Abraham that he is one who does righteousness and justice. That, that hope, I would pray that that would be our testimony in everything that we do, in every decision that is made. We should hunger and thirst and seek out righteousness, and then we shall be filled. And filled with the blessing that we're sort of seeking, that we won't feel empty at all. We'll feel like we've done good. We will be encouraged and blessed and strengthened in our own, in our own lives. Our spirit will be lifted up when we do what is right and what is good for others. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. This is, of course, where, you know, you might be in some level of power over someone else and be ready to enact judgment upon them, yet you show mercy. You show leniency to somebody. And then when you are judged, you'll be judged by the same token. Those that are unmerciful to others to in a relationship, and it's all like, I have no mercy for you. You know what they actually do? They actually burn bridges that they themselves will later have to cross. They themselves will be judged at some point in time. Maybe not now, maybe not tomorrow, maybe not for a bunch of years, but at some point we will all be judged. All will find ourselves standing before the Lord at the judgment seat, at the, the house of judgment for the Lord to decide and all will have to give an account. And if you had the opportunity to show mercy in what would have been the righteous thing to do at the time, and you did not show that mercy to your fellow brother, you burned a bridge that you later were going to have to cross. And that is what it is to show mercy because you will obtain mercy. This is one of those shares and exchanges that we have to do in exchange with one another. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Pure in heart, again, we're starting to get into these really spiritual things of we can all sit and just debate on what the opinion of is. What is it to be pure in heart? I think one of the things that that, uh, the way my opinion uh, is on, on the matter is it reminds me of a child. It reminds me of the innocence of a child. It reminds me of, of the fact that it's a heart that is young, healthy, clean, pure, and it's ready to just do what it's meant to do. As we grow older, our heart gets a little dirty. So, you know, we eat a lot wrong things. We build up some cholesterol in there. And suddenly we, our heart isn't as clean as it used to be. It's not as pure as it used to be. Now, that's a physical analogy, of course, of, you know, when you eat the wrong things and you build up the, the you know, the possibility of getting a heart attack here, which is literally the biggest killer in the world is literally having an unclean heart as the, with cardiac disease being the biggest killer in the world statistically. Um, that's a physical example of a spiritual concept. 
that ultimately our heart, what comes from our innermost being, must be, again, what is pure, what is clean, what is righteous, what is beautiful. And that when we get a little crusty on the edges is when we start to lose some of that. And that so we have to have that pure heart, have a clean heart, because then you will see God. What does God always say about his presence? Well, you, that he will not be, his presence will not be in a place that is unclean. That's why when you went in before the temple, into the temple, you had to, the priests had to wash their hands, wash their feet. Yeah, everyone took a mikvah, mikvah bath before going up onto the temple mount. And they say, because they have to be pure, they have to be clean before they will be in the presence of God. Blessed are the pure in heart, and they will see God. Bless, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. This is the one thing that I always like to do. Whenever you see conflict, we're surrounded by conflict all the time. And you want to be the one, you always want to find yourself, rather than picking a side, be the one that brings peace. Being the one, be the one that builds a bridge. Be the one that helps to, to decide a decision between one thing or another and bring peace to the situation, no matter what the conflict is. Children try to do this growing up when they see their parents arguing, and there's sometimes that there'll be a little child that will come up and just be like, Dad, Mom, please stop fighting. You know, maybe they're old enough to actually start, like, negotiating, and then the parents feel horrible that their own child has to negotiate, uh, you know, this, this conflict between them. And sometimes that usually is the thing that brings, back, brings about the resolution of the conflict it's because there was a peacemaker involved. Now, children shouldn't have to, it shouldn't be the responsibility of children to be the, the one who resolves those kind of conflicts. We all should be peacemakers among us. We all should be the one that tries to diffuse the conflicts, to not have anything turn against one another. We need to be careful to maintain those things and to be the ones that bring about peace. Because if you are, then you'll become sons of the living God. Then you become, then that shows how you are the fa- in the family of God. And the last one, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Where it says, even when things happen to you, when when you've been beaten down, when people are persecute you for following God, for being a believer, you will be an inheritor of the kingdom of God. Because and that's and that's the blessing that comes upon us. So that even though we come, we follow, we we walk this lifestyle, and even though other people might say something against us think we're crazy for believing in God or or following commandments that were written thousands of years ago and being persecuted for doing those things, ultimately the blessing comes from the Lord. All those things still come from the Lord that we would be the ones who would inherit the kingdom. These are the blessings and the beatitudes that are here for us to be encouraged and to be strengthened. And these are the blessings that came from the mountain spoken by the mouth of the Lord. At the end of our Torah portion, uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 29, at the first couple of verses, leading into next week's portion, which begins in Deuteronomy 29 at verse 10, there is one little sort of phrase that is described about the children of Israel here that in all of the covenant that is being given to them. If we go back to Deuteronomy 29 and we read this, and it says, starting at verse 2, it says, Moses called all of Israel and said to them, You have seen all the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land. The great trials which your eyes have seen, the signs and those great wonders. Yet the Lord has not given you a heart to perceive and eyes to see and ears to hear to this very day. And I have led you 40 years in the wilderness. Your clothes have not worn out on you. 
and your sandals have not worn out on your feet. And you have not eaten bread, nor have you drunk wine or similar drink, that you may know that I am the Lord your God. And when you came to this place, Sihon, the king of Heshbon, and Og, the king of Bashan, came out against you in battle, and we conquered them. And he's describing these great things that they have seen. Yet the children of Israel that wandered in the wilderness were ones that were not given eyes to see and ears to hear, even though there were things they saw. And even though there were things they heard, this is ultimately a greater prophecy for those that more teaching was going to come. That yes, we have the example of what the children of Israel did and what they saw and what they experienced, but they did not perceive truly what was happening. They were still spiritually immature, righteously called the, or rightly called the children of Israel because of their spiritual maturity. That even though they saw these great signs and wonders, they did not believe. So how do we, how do we be encouraged in our day and age that we, if, if they even, if you see signs and wonders, yet they didn't, they saw them and they didn't believe, what about us? And if we don't see signs and wonders, can we still believe? In fact, that's how we're supposed to learn. That's how we're supposed to learn to believe is believe in the unseen. Faith comes by hearing. Faith comes by hearing the Word of God. So when the Word of God is spoken, we hear it and we perceive it. If we turn to Matthew chapter 13, where we have the uh, instruction on the, of the parable of the sower, and where it's talking about that he spoke in this way and, and, and talking about the parable of the sower, how seed sometimes fell by the wayside or fell in the stony places or fell, fell in the good earth and grew. And there's a lesson that he was, uh, that he was teaching and explaining that I don't have, uh, I'm running out of time to get into the details of the parable of the sower, but I want to go to uh, verse 10 of Matthew 13, where he's talking about where the disciples question, why is he speaking in parables? Why is he speaking with these metaphors and these stories? And here is what the Messiah said. Verse 11, he answered them and said, Because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For whoever has to him, more will be given, and he will have abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. Therefore, I speak to them in parables. Because seeing, they do not see, and hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. And in them, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, which says, Hearing, you will hear, and shall not understand, and seeing, you will see, and not perceive. For the hearts of this people have grown dull, their ears are hard of hearing, and their eyes they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts, and turn so that I should heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. And for assuredly, I say to you, that many prophets and righteous men desire to see what you see, and did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and did not hear it. He's speaking to the disciples, and he's pointing out there is a difference to the people that might see things, see wonders, hear of wonders, yet their ears are closed, yet their eyes are closed. And they don't see it and they don't hear it. We're not talking about physical eyes. We're not talking about physical ears. We're talking about spiritual things. We're talking about those that fail to to understand what God is trying to do. And what it is is this. 
you want to teach people so that they learn and retain what has been given to them. See, God can tell us, we, or, I, or let's not say God, I could just tell you something outright, give you knowledge, give you a piece of information. Are you going to retain that information? Maybe if you commit it to memory, you write it down, and it's just this, it's just this lecture, and it's just point A to point B exchange of knowledge. What if instead of me telling it to you, <clears throat> what if I give you an example <clears throat> of something that you, a story that you hear, and then you start running through your head all the possibilities and the examples, and then suddenly through the course of the story, you learn it and you come to the revelation of what I was trying to tell you without me straight up telling you. I didn't just tell you the information, but you learned it either through word picture or through description or through something else. Suddenly, that thing that came into your mind that, that, that filled your brain with, with some bit of knowledge that you learned on your own, that is something that is retained. You retain it because you created the idea, the memory of it, and you learned it. And that is the best way that you can actually learn anything. That's why God's, that's why Yeshua spoke in parables. <laughs> May the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In the name of Yeshua the Messiah, the Prince of Peace. Shalom. Shalom.